Is he or isn't he? Is she or is she not? Is he what? Is, is she what? Is he saved? Has she trusted Jesus as her savior? Are they Christians? Have you ever been part of a conversation like that? Have you ever played a conversation like that even in your own mind? Sometimes we ask these questions out of a level of curiosity where we, I suppose we just want to know other people's business. But sometimes questions like that come from the best of motives and from the warmest pastoral heart. If we're thinking about a close friend or a relative, any sort of loved one. Sometimes we ask these questions because we carry a, a real responsibility for the people concerned. We're an elder or a pastor or a parent. We think of the, the one under our care and we long to know that they're right with God, that they're citizens of his kingdom. Are they in or aren't they? And you, you probably picked it up. That lies right at the heart of this passage we've been reading this morning that Jeff read for us from Matthew 13. Just before we come to look at these parables, I want you to notice something about the audience throughout Matthew 13. It begins with a crowd. Look at the opening couple of verses of the chapter. The crowd coming to Jesus is so big that he has to use a boat for a pulpit, use the, the water of Lake Galilee as a natural sound system. So what did the people hear that day above the lapping of the waves and the cry of the gulls? Well, they heard eight stories. Jesus told them eight parables. Last week, we looked at the first of these parables, the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, as we should probably call it. In that parable, we learned about four different responses to the Word of God and how Jesus encouraged people to, to consider carefully, carefully, how you listen. And there's a sense in which that parable's preliminary. It, it, it comes before he says anything else. Be careful how you listen because I have a lot to say. What, what's he asking them now to listen out for? Well, he makes it clear what his message is. Verse 19, Jesus' message is about the kingdom. In verse 12, he's told his disciples that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you. Jesus wants his disciples and those who hear him preach to understand the kingdom of God. And in particular, he wants them to enter the kingdom. He wants them to become citizens of the kingdom. And that's why he goes on to tell them these parables of the kingdom. That's, that's what Matthew 13 is all about. Parables of the kingdom. Eight in one chapter. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like a field full of wheat and weeds. Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. It's like treasure hidden in a field. It's like a fine pearl. It's like a fishing net. And it's like a householder. Each of these parables adds another dimension to our understanding of the kingdom of God. We, we looked at the first uh, last week. I'm going to take these last couple of Sundays of this series to look at the other seven. This is crucial 
teaching from Jesus about anybody who wants to understand life with him, life in the kingdom of God. Okay, so we've established that Matthew 13, Jesus is addressing a crowd that he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. But I said a moment ago that the audience changes as we move through the chapter. Have a look at verse 36. After he's told four of these parables, soils, weeds, mustard seed, and yeast, we read that he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and asked, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So here's our second audience. It's no longer the huge crowd of anyone and everyone. It's a, a smaller crowd of Jesus' disciples, those whom Jesus has chosen to be with him, those who would carry on his discipling work, those who would one day be the leaders of the early church. Because some of what Jesus addresses in this chapter is addressed to a smaller audience, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that some of his teaching is pastoral advice for church leaders. So this morning, we're going to look at the two parables that we read, the weeds and the net, and I'm going to suggest that Jesus' words still speak to the same two audiences, the crowd, that is to all of us, and then a smaller group, that is those who've been given responsibility to lead the church. Don't, don't worry about which part of that you find yourself in. What, what I'm going to share will have relevance for all of us. So let's begin by noticing Jesus' message to all of us, to the crowd, in these, the first of these remaining seven parables, that of the weeds. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a field. It's got a healthy crop in it, but it's also got its fair share of weeds. The farmhands, when they notice this, when they notice the weeds cropping up, they want to remove them. And then when they approach the owner of the field, he declares his agricultural policy. Nope. Let the weeds alone for now. We'll deal with them at the harvest. When you first read it, you're thinking, well, I wonder what he really means. Thankfully, this is one of those parables where Jesus goes on to explain so in verses 36 to 43, he tells us Jesus has been sowing. If you hold the first parable still in your mind, Jesus has been sowing the seed in the world as he's preached the gospel of the kingdom. The good plants, he says, stand for those who have responded to the message and they've entered life in the kingdom. The weeds are those who reject Jesus. Both kinds of people, he says, are going to be allowed to grow together until the final judgment. At that time, God's angels will separate those who follow Jesus from those who do not and will give them each their just reward for eternity. Our second parable this morning, the parable of the net, you, you maybe saw it there towards the end of the chapter. It uses a different image but makes exactly the same point. This time the picture isn't wheat and weeds but it's good fish and bad and the fisherman's net is raised with, with bad fish and good together in it. The point's the same as the parable of the weeds. In the end, at the final judgment, it is God's angels who will judge between the righteous and the wicked. Okay, I want to pause for a few moments now and reflect on what Jesus' teaching here has to say to all of us. 
He's telling us, I think, that we have one enemy, two destinies, and one judge. Notice first the one enemy. Whenever Jesus, whenever the servants in Jesus' parable ask the master, where did these weeds come from? The master tells them, verse 28, an enemy did this. As he explains the parable, he elaborates on this point, in particular, verse 38. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. According to Jesus, Satan is God's enemy and ours. I need to slow down for a second here. I know this is 2023, and we're in Bangor, County Down, Northern Ireland, in the Western world. Maybe you find the concept of Satan's real existence and his activity in our world difficult to accept. Maybe it feels medieval to you, not something that a modern person should take seriously. Well, even without taking you to a large number of Bible passages, I can show you in two minutes in the life of Jesus that he certainly took Satan and his work seriously because he had cause to. Do you remember what happened as soon as Jesus was baptized? Before he began his public ministry? That's right. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you remember what happened when Simon Peter resisted the teaching of Jesus that he, he would have to suffer many things and that he would be killed? Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Even in this chapter, this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked about the evil one. Look at verse 19. It's the evil one who comes and snatches away the word of God sown to our hearts. Folks, I, I can only imagine that he's doing that for some of us right now. That he's preventing us from hearing what's been said. Brothers and sisters, be warned. You have an enemy. He is God's sworn enemy, and he's your enemy, and he goes to great lengths to prevent you from hearing the word of God, responding to it, and finding your place in the kingdom. Because we have one enemy who longs to keep us from our one rightful God, we have two possible destinies. That's the point Jesus is making with these parables, isn't it? It's clear that he wants us to come to him to find life in the kingdom, but he's not afraid to warn us that there is an alternative. In his parables, verse 30, he talks about the weeds that will be tied in bundles and burned. He elaborates verse 40, and he says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They'll weed out his kingdom, out of his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil, and they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's difficult, isn't it? 
to hear teaching like that. None of us likes to dwell on the reality that there might be such a place as hell and that some people really will go there. We find this hard to hear, and yet Jesus is willing to speak of it. Why might that be? It's because he loves us. Jesus' willingness to speak about hell is one of the greatest expressions of his love. Jesus, the one who loves you more than any other. Jesus, the one who came to the cross to give himself for you. He talks about hell for one reason only. It's because he doesn't want you to go there. Sometimes we're drawn to try and imagine what hell will be like. I have to say I have little idea what hell will really be like. I'd like to echo my theology professor, Dr. Packer, at this point. He says, we cannot, of course, form any adequate notion of hell any more than we can of heaven. But perhaps the clearest notion we can form is that derived from contemplating the cross. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Packer goes on to explain that the cross of Jesus Christ teaches us much about hell. He says, on the cross, God judged our sins in the person of his son, and Jesus endured the retributive comeback of our wrongdoing. Look at the cross, therefore, and you'll see what form God's judicial reaction to human sin will finally take. What form is that? In a word, withdrawal and deprivation of good on the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had had before, all sense of his Father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him, and in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness. Having reflected on what the cross teaches us about hell, Packer invites us each to consider our own response to God. Those who reject God face the prospect of losing all good and the best way to form an adequate idea of eternal death is to dwell on this thought. In ordinary life, we never notice how much good we enjoy through God's common grace until it's taken from us. We never value health or steady circumstances or friendship and respect from others as we should until we've lost them. Calvary shows that under the final judgment of God, nothing that one has valued or could value, nothing that one could call good remains to one. It is a terrible thought, but the, we, the reality we may be sure is more terrible still. Packer concludes by urging us to respond, God, help us to learn this lesson. 
which Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross so clearly teaches. And may each of us be found in Christ, our sins covered by his blood at the last. We're looking this morning at the parable of the weeds and of the net, and we're making sure that we don't miss Jesus' message, his message for all of us. We have two destinies, heaven and hell. We have one enemy, hell-bent on ensuring that our destiny is not in the kingdom of God. And thirdly, we have one judge. This may come as a surprise to you. Who is our judge? Who is it who will finally separate the wheat from the weeds, the good fish from the bad? Verse 30, 41, sorry. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they'll weed out his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Jesus tells us that it's the Son of Man who'll be our judge. Who's the Son of Man? That's Jesus. That's how Jesus Christ often refers to himself. He is the judge before whom we must finally stand. As I say, that might come as a surprise to you. You, you might have a picture of God in your head. We've been thinking about the Trinity today. And you might have a picture of God in your head where, where God is the, the judge. He, he may be the angry one in your economy of these things. And that Jesus is the one who comes to save us from the judgment of God. There's a sense in which that's true, but it's not the whole picture. It's not what the Bible teaches and certainly not how Jesus understood himself. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus taught us often that a day was coming when we'll all appear before God's throne and we'll be confronted with the abiding and eternal consequences of how we've responded to him. He tells us repeatedly that he will be God's agent in this judgment. And that his word of acceptance or rejection will be definitive. I don't have time this morning to take you to many of those passages. So let me take you to the, one of the clearest uh, Bible passages where we have a picture of Jesus as judge. It's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. You can flick a few pages or listen as I read. There's a parable there, another parable that would sit well with these parables this morning. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels come with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates this, the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom of God here. The kingdom prepared for you since the beginning of the creation of the world. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's another parable of the kingdom. 
Friends, I trust you've been listening carefully to Jesus this morning. He's told us that there are two destinies, heaven and hell. He's inviting you to come to him and to find life in his kingdom. His enemy and yours, Satan, is at work to prevent you today from trusting in Jesus. I plead with you this morning. Make your future judge into your present Savior. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Do it today. We have listened to Jesus' message to the crowd that day and his message for all of us. I said at the outset that we had noticed as well what Jesus has to say to those who have been given responsibility to lead in his church. This will be very brief. When the servants in our story ask the master what he wants them to do, whether he wants them to do a spot of weeding to tidy up his field, he says no. Jesus knows, I think, that his disciples, who will soon be leaders in his church, they will feel responsible for those under their care. He knows that they would love to be clear about who's saved and who isn't, who's a Christian and who isn't, who's in the kingdom and who's not. He knows our tendency to want to know these things and to act on them and to sort things out to weed out the wrong sort out of the church and to purify the church as if that were possible. Friends, the truth is there won't ever be a pure church. How do I know that? Because I'm in it. And because you are along with me. If we're going to be a church at all, then we'll have to accept that we have to live and work with others whose motives are as mixed, whose lives are as broken as our own. There'll always be a heady cocktail of failure, of betrayal, of sin, of pride and folly in every church. And the answer, says Jesus, is not to go and try and pluck out the weeds and to try and get rid of them. That only disturbs the wheat. Let them grow together, he says. I like how Michael Green puts it in his commentary on Matthew's gospel. He says, at harvest time, at the end of the day, God will know how to separate the false from the real, the churchy person from Christ's person, the weeds from the wheat. The one who determines the separation is not us, but God. And the time when it happens is not now, but then. Jesus warns us against practicing judgment, not because judgment isn't important, but because it's too important a job to be left to the likes of us. those of us charged with any kind of responsibility in the church. We're not to try uprooting. We're not to countenance surgery. The, the evil strands in the church, in the world, and in the human heart, they're sown by a great enemy, the devil. 
Did you notice in our passage that the Lord seems to anticipate that? It doesn't take him by surprise. He seems to have room for this in his overall plan. But we're reassured in this passage that his plan will not be thwarted. In the meantime, God's going to look after his church. And he'll do that himself. So there it is, church leader. Don't worry about weeds in the field or bad fish in the net. God will sort that out in his own good time. If judgment isn't our calling, what then is? I think it's pretty straightforward. We're to sow, 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 and keep on sowing the seed of the Word of God, preaching the gospel. We're to fish, 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 and keep on fishing that more men and women and boys and girls who aren't yet citizens of the kingdom will find themselves drawn to Jesus Christ. Let's get on with that and leave the judging to the only true judge of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize ourselves in the servants in Jesus' story we, when we see people who don't seem to be right with you, who maybe shouldn't be where they appear to be, Lord, we, we want to sort that out. We want to fix it. We want to exercise judgment. Lord, I pray that we would hear your word today and that we'd set that spirit aside. Help us instead, Lord, to come humbly back to you to trust in Jesus Christ our Savior who will one day be our judge Lord help us to be sure that we are ready for the judgment as we put our trust in Jesus who loved us enough to die for us and Lord we pray then that you would release us into this world as men and women who share the good news of the kingdom with others, who show them that they have a, a wonderful invitation to a life with Jesus. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.